Well, there's a first time for everything. This is my first time to uh, preach over Zoom. And so here we go. Um, this past week, um, also, I'll say before I get started, um, where's my chat? Oh, there we go. Uh, if I have any technical difficulties and I'm um, oblivious to it, uh, please let me know. Holler at me or uh, leave me a note. And we'll have some chance to, to chat in the message this morning. So we'll use the chat bar for that as well. Uh, this past week, Ben Reese and his colleague, Dr. Sarah Sockhill, I should say Dr. Ben Reese, and his colleague, Dr. Sarah Sockhill, uh, did a webinar for healthcare workers who are fighting COVID. Uh, and they talked about navigating their own anxiety amidst these anxious time times. Uh, Dr. Sockhill is a marriage and family therapist. And she made the point that while many people are, in fact, dealing with heightened levels of anxiety because of coronavirus, they're also wrestling with a less frequently named emotion, grief. Um, this insight really unlocks something for me personally. Sarah Walker mentioned it earlier. Um, grief is about loss, and there has been a lot of loss in this COVID season, the loss of jobs, the loss of school, the loss of health, the loss of family members and friends. These are the big losses that we can think of. But there are other losses that are just as legitimate. The loss of routine, the loss of personal space, the loss of office space, the loss of freedom, the loss of social connection, uh, the loss of physically present teachers for our children, just to name a few. Um, recognizing that grief is at play actually reduced my anxiety. Uh, because realizing that we're in grief allows us to cut ourselves some slack and just name the grief and sit with the grief and experience the grief. Uh, and so I wonder, uh, in what ways are you experiencing grief or a sense of loss in this COVID season? Let me know in the chat bar and I'll, I'll take a few responses. John says he misses hugs. Yeah, me too. Me too. Ben Reese was wearing a hug it out shirt. I told him I wished I could hug it out with him this morning. Sarah Holland, what about you? Um, uh, I think, I think most of y'all know that the work I do, we host, um, conferences around the world and for women in ministry, men and women in ministry. And we are supposed to be going to Poland in June. Uh, end of June and we're supposed to having, uh, our planning retreat in a couple weekends and, and, um, I am grieving, uh, the loss of all of those relationships and getting to spend time with people that, I, that I love dearly and people that, that I don't even know that I would have gotten to meet in Poland. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sarah. That's so hard. I'm sorry for that loss. Daryl Willis. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Sarah on that. It's the same, same thing for us. We, every year we go to Europe 
and um, our, the staff will go to different trips. And it's been a while since I've been to Ukraine. And that was one thing I, we were talking about me going to Ukraine this spring, uh, late spring, um, and not being able to see people that I know and love over there. Um, that's, that's a grief. Um, not being able, and of course, you know, as y'all know, I travel quite frequently. And believe it or not, while travel is a killer, and I really don't like being gone all the time, I get to be with incredible people wherever I go. And having to do third best with telephone calls is, I just don't like that. And I miss, along with John, I'm going to amen with John, I miss the stinking hugs <laughs> of my family, my church family and, and people I know. Yeah. Word. Thank you, Daryl. Uh, Kara, why don't you give our last response? Kara Wilson. Uh, this one is not quite as deep, <laughs> but... Um, I, I depend on my trips back and forth to the U.S. to stock up on toiletries. <laughs> and, um, and I can't, so now I have to buy, I have to buy things here in El Salvador and I don't, I don't really, it's just, it's, it's different. And, um, and also we don't have Amazon here or anything similar to it. And so like Oscar's birthday is this next week. He got up when I said that I was going to speak, by the way. <laughs> um, he is, and I can't buy a birthday present for him, you know, so it's just, um, the conveniences, conveniences. And, um, it's the first time living outside of the U S in like the 15 years that I've lived outside of the U S that I have felt like I, I missed being there. Mm. Yeah. Those, those, uh, Smaller losses might seem trivial, um, but they're, they're, they're true losses and they add up and we feel them in real, real ways, legitimate ways. Thank you for sharing that, Kira. Uh, on this Easter Sunday, we are starting a new message series called Community in Crisis from First Peter. I had big plans for a series out of Isaiah all about the, the world-sweeping implications of the resurrection, but alas, we shall hold that for another time. Um, this Easter, we need to find grounding and sustenance that the good news provides in the midst of crisis, because we're in one. Um, the very first verse, and I'll, I'm going to be working through the first part of chapter one of 1 Peter, if you want to pull your um, your Bible up or pull it out or whatever. Um, and follow along. The, the first verse of Peter's letter addresses the exiles and the scattered believers across Asia Minor. Uh, what we know today is Turkey. Some were literally exiled and scattered. They were immigrants in a new place in the Roman Empire and at the margins of society and power. Others were exiled and scattered more metaphorically, they were experiencing social displacement because of their peculiar commitment to Jesus. And they found themselves to be cultural outsiders, both to local Jewish communities and to the broader Greco-Roman provinces. And we know from Peter's letter that they were facing crisis. They were being ostracized because of their allegiance to Jesus. They were 
They were shamed. They were slandered. They were ridiculed. What can we learn then from Peter's words to these marginalized Christian communities about how to hold up faithfully in the midst of crisis? What sustains them in their crisis? Peter doesn't waste any time in his letter getting right to it. Right out of the gate, he mentions three gifts that Jesus' followers receive because of their allegiance to him. These gifts help to sustain them in the midst of their crisis. The first is a living hope in verse 3. This living hope isn't wishful fancies about the future, but a confident expectation that God is going to work as God has worked in the past. The second gift is an inheritance in verse 4. Primarily, this this sense of inheritance means that these believers, many of whom have been ostracized from their own families, are a part of a family. They are part of God's family. They have an eternal inheritance waiting for them that can't decay, that can't be defiled, and that can't expire. The third gift is salvation in verse 5. Verse 9 refers to it as the salvation of your souls. Uh, that feels old school, you know, to me. Uh, the translation here makes it sound like Peter is only concerned with the spiritual part of them and that salvation is really just about our souls and the rest doesn't matter. But that is not what he's saying. The word for soul is the same word for life. Our whole person will be saved. Uh, salvation for Peter is about the ultimate rescue of these Christians from their current oppression, from all the ways that they're suffering. Salvation is deliverance from the crises uh, that they're in. One thing I noticed about these three gifts is that they're all future-oriented. Hope for the future, inheritance in the future, salvation in the future, and that makes sense. Uh, When the present is a nightmare, what can we do? but look to the future, to a time when things might be better than they currently are. Uh, It's not unlike the popular spiritual sung by African slaves in the American South. Swing low, sweet chariot, coming for to carry me home. In the midst of their suffering, it was a way that they could set their sights on deliverance to come and to sustain through the crisis. Uh, one of the books I've discovered in my research on religious trauma is called Spiritual Bypassing by Robert Masters. Uh, spiritual bypassing, as he defines it, is the use of spiritual practices and beliefs to avoid dealing with our painful feelings, our unresolved wounds, and our developmental needs. Uh, Masters describes spiritual bypassing as avoidance in holy drag. What a great phrase. Uh, spiritual bypassing is essentially a strategy for avoiding pain and for justifying the avoidance of that pain because it's the spiritual thing to do. And that doesn't seem very healthy to me. Uh, the obvious question then is, uh, is Peter promoting spiritual bypassing in his instruction to these Christian communities? I want to say, no, he's not for at least two reasons. Um, First, we'll see in the rest of his letter that Peter calls them to continued engagement with society around them. 
to live holy lives, to be witnesses. Uh, that's not the kind of thing you'd expect if Peter was promoting avoidance or spiritual bypassing. And the second reason I don't think it's spiritual bypassing uh, is right in the midst of our text today. Uh, Peter doesn't seek to minimize their grief or to say that it magically disappears because they have this inexpressible joy that comes from the gospel. Paradoxically, Peter admits that they can hold both grief and joy at the same time in verse 6. What's more is that grief can even become their teacher. Uh, Verse 7 says that their faith will be refined and strengthened in the fire of the crisis. Now, saying that grief is a teacher is different than saying that's the reason that the crisis happened in the first place. Uh, Call it a silver lining, but don't call it the purpose. Um, God is not cruel. God is crafty like that. Uh, Using the same metaphor as Peter, Robert Master says that authentic spirituality is a vast fire of liberation, an exquisitely fitting crucible. Masters goes on to say that to outgrow spiritual bypassing, we must free spirituality from the obligation to make us feel better or more secure or more whole and to do so with great compassion for ourselves and all the ways that we might seek to use spirituality as a pacifier. Peter has this way of holding both of these things together, staying present in the grief and the pain, uh, acknowledging it, not wishing it away, and at the same time finding solace and strength in the hope of salvation, in the hope that we'll be delivered from the crises that we face. At the end of the day, this counsel is not just all magical thinking for Peter. It is grounded in a very concrete reality, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. To return to verse 3, in his abundant mercy, God has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Our hope, our inheritance, our salvation is grounded in salvation that has already occurred. Jesus went through crisis, even unto death, and God saved him from it. Death and disease did not have the last word. The crisis did not overcome Jesus in the end. God defeated death in the resurrection of Jesus. That actually happened. It's not merely a mythological, metaphorical truth. I woke up this morning thinking about my dear friend, Josh Patrick. Uh, We went to seminary together in Memphis. Uh, We were workout buddies. Uh, He got me a job as a preaching apprentice with the church uh, he served, and it changed my life. Uh, We ended up leading a ministry together in that church, and our families, our wives at the time, we were pre-babies. Julie and Joni were really good buddies. And I consider myself a reasonably enthusiastic person. Those of you who know me know that I can get excited about books or relationships or sports or life uh, or Ozark, Ben Reese. Um, Josh, I quickly discovered, has more enthusiasm in his pinky 
than I have in my entire body. And that translated into his preaching. Uh, his favorite thing to preach about was the resurrection. Uh, Colossians 1, 1 through 15 was one of his favorite texts uh, where it talks about how Jesus is the image of the invisible God and how Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. He's the first fruits of this greater resurrection that we're hoping for. Uh, about five years ago, in his mid-30s, Josh discovered he had stage four colon cancer. And I remember the phone calls that we shared where he expressed how terrified he was and how deeply sad, especially for his wife and his three daughters. One of the things that Josh did in the midst of this was to start a blog. He did three things mainly. Uh, he would share what he was grateful for. Uh, he would ask for specific prayer about things. And he wrote about the resurrection. And when I visited him in the midst of it in Nashville, I was struck by the depth of his hope. Uh, Josh passed away last January. And when I attended his funeral, I heard scores of others say they'd seen the same thing in Josh. His hope and his joy in the midst of crisis and in the face of death. You know, I wonder for all of you, who have you seen holding grief and joy together in Christian hope? Uh, if somebody comes to mind, I'd love to hear about how uh, we could be inspired by the witness they're giving um, to the resurrection and the gospel. Who have you seen? Who have you seen holding grief and joy together in Christian hope? Leave a comment in the chat bar and I'll holler at you. Val, share with us. Um, my sister and brother-in-law, um, one of their first friends when they moved to New York um, was um, Ruthie and her husband, Harvey. And um, I know we've prayed for them in the past uh, two years ago. Mm -hmm. um, there was a very tragic accident. Shortly and, before, before Easter. Uh -huh. yeah. um, and Ruthie's a five-year-old daughter was killed and then she was also pregnant and she ultimately ended up losing that baby too. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was just really horrific. And my sister actually, we did kind of like a family, um, dinner get like zoom virtual get together last night. And my sister shared that Ruthie and Harvey have always been to her such a model of even in such extreme grief and pain, they've shared with their church, like, you know, it always, for them, they used it as Good Friday. They said it felt like Friday for a long time. Mm -hmm. And even now it still feels like maybe it's still Friday. Maybe it's, it's Saturday, but we know that Sunday will come and um, they're expecting another baby and, and like I said, just even them coming out and, and being with people and sharing their story and her just saying, it, I mean, it brought us all to tears last night, her saying like the fact that they still say, I know, I know there's a resurrection. I know it's coming. It's just it's very, very inspiring to me. Yeah. For them to share and just to say, we're going to do this again. 
and we're going to have another baby when the, the most, I think, terrifying thing for any parent uh, that could happen has happened to them. And to say, but we still have faith. We still believe that God is good, that a resurrection is coming. Um, yeah, their story is just incredibly fast. Yeah. I remember, Val, you sharing about Ruthie back when that happened. And um, it's a beautiful thing to hear an update about how God's been at work with them and through them in that. Thank you for sharing that. Terry, what about you? Well, I know some of y'all know Rick and Beverly Ross. Um, I know this week she said, remind me that the tomb is empty. Mm. Um, They lost their daughter in her early thirties. And I can remember she has spoke all over everywhere about loss and grief. And, um, I think uh, she asked her husband, Rick, how they were going to get through it. And he said, they're going to cling to the hope that the tomb is empty. And so this week I saw on her Facebook uh, post, she said, remind me that the tomb is empty. Yeah. Word. Hear the good news because of the resurrection of Jesus. We have hope in the face of crisis. We can hold joy together with our grief. We can look forward to the time when God will eradicate the reign of sin and death forever. Uh, when God will bring resurrection to all of us, to our loved ones, to the entire cosmos. And in the meantime, we can engage suffering by pursuing love and service and holiness in our community. Can you believe that news? Can you live out of that news? Uh, Dr. Dennis Edwards is one of my professors at Northern, where I'm currently in school, and I may be in school there forever. Uh, we'll see. Uh, he is the first African-American New Testament professor that I have ever studied under, and he will not be the last. Um, one thing I appreciated from his commentary on First Peter was a suggestion to continually connect to this truth of our hope and salvation through the arts, either through music or poetry or other artistic expressions. Um, I've seen that in all of you on the, in a lot of you on the Facebook, um, ways that you are connecting through arts and various means. Uh, the arts have a way of helping us experience these truths and tensions in a powerful way. Um, Edward says that's one reason that spirituals were so important to the slaves in the American South. It helped them to articulate and to live into something that was just hard to talk about otherwise. And that said, you might consider how you could stay connected to hope this week through the arts somehow. Uh, assuming you're not already. So I thought that was, uh, I wanted to pass that word of encouragement on. It was encouraging to me.